Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Tom Hamilton, Associate Professor of Early Modern European History at Durham University, to talk about his new book, A Widow's Vengeance After the Wars of Religion, Gender and Justice in in Renaissance France, out right now, right this minute, 2024, from Oxford University Press. Hi, Tom, how are you? Hi, Yana, I'm well, thanks. Oh, it's great to talk to you today. I mean, and right now, the book came out yesterday. It did. So thanks very much for inviting me. It's lovely to have a chance to talk about it when it's uh, just been delivered to Durham. The box came a few days ago. Ah, that's delightful. You're holding in your hands copies of your work. Um, it's hard to un- to overestimate exactly how special that is, right? Like, that's so great. After Yay! It's such a long, kind of lonely process. Very few, in fact, an academic career. There are very few moments of like pure celebration. So, congratulations! Well done. So let's talk about this guy. So you're an historian of the wars of religion, right? And early modern, the Renaissance, this kind of wars of religion period, France, and really how they play out. I mean, your first monograph, which is Pierre de l'Estoile and his world in the wars of religion 2017 oxford deals with the same subject matter and if i recall correctly you first met rene chevalier the star of this book while you were working on pierre yeah yes or, or more i met her adversary Mathilde de la Conge, and the only reference to the trial for this book uh, widow's vengeance after the wars of religion the only reference to that trial i found outside of the archival material was in pierre de l'etoile's diary because he attended the execution in Paris and wrote a short report of it. And one thing I was interested in writing that book was to compare the notes of a diarist with external sources to check how accurate is this diarist when he writes about his times. And I found he's very accurate when I compared his reports with criminal archives because he, he part of the book, he worked in the, the, the law courts in Paris, was familiar with many of the judges. Um, but that meant that he, he gave me a way into understanding not only his world in the wars of religion, but also other related topics um, where he was present. So I think he surely knew the widow René Chevalier. They used the same notary. Mm. They lived very nearby in Paris, but he doesn't mention her, although he attended Matran de la execution and had a very low opinion of them. Mm. Yeah, well, well, we'll get to that. That's probably well-founded. Um, before we go on any further, tell us a bit about the archival material that make up the base of this study and your previous study. And Well, it's a great question to start with because the archives are what got me into the topic. Uh, I think broadly as a historian, as a social and cultural historian, my interest is in fundamentally how did people live through and survive the wars of religion. But that's really hard to understand as a historian if I'm interested in anybody beyond the levels of the highest aristocracy or the, the very literate elites. I wrote my first book on a diarist who was a, a, a very literate and learned member of the elites. But I wanted to, to dig a bit further and look for the experience of what we might call ordinary people um, 
anybody who's who was not literate. Um, and I tended to want to work with criminal archives because that's where you might find as a historian people who can't sign their names but turn up in the record because someone's asking a question, whether it's because they're accused of a crime or accusing somebody else of a crime. So I started working on the, the main series of criminal archives from 16th century France that survive are from the High Court of the Parlement of Paris. It's the Appeal Court. Um, it had a jurisdiction covering half the French population. Its archives are not entirely complete, but are very extensive from the mid 16th century. So you have all sorts of interrogations and other legal records. And there's a series of some catalogued longer interrogations. And I remember when I was first struggling to even read the handwriting, which sometimes looks like the hairs on my arm. Um, and I thought, I just can't do this. Um, I need to photograph um, and take it back to, to the UK to start transcribing. I relied on a catalogue, which had a brief description of some cases. It mentioned some were linked to the wars of religion. This was one of them. Um, and it mentions uh, just the name of the accused. And that helped me, as I mentioned before, link it with Pierre Latour's diary report. But as I started reading this run in particular in more detail and transcribing it, I realised quite how extraordinary it was because it, it's one of the lengthiest trials conserved from the archives of the Parlement Paris in the 16th century. So one of the longest criminal trials from 16th century France that survives. And it includes the testimony of 57 witnesses, mostly peasants from a village called Chaumont in central France near the cathedral city of Sens. And they're talking about their experiences of the, of the wars of religion. And they're there because of what happened in this, this criminal incident that's Otherwise, it'd be very difficult for them to turn up anywhere in the archives. And so I, I didn't mean to write a book on this trial. Uh, I was researching criminal justice in the wars of religion more widely. And I came to a point where I thought that I could carry on that larger project when I'm still carrying on as a researcher. Um, but if I did that and, and left this trial, it might be a paragraph. It might be some examples, some anecdotes in, in a broader book. But then I would lose the stories of the people who really interested me and captured my attention. So I thought after a while, having spent so long transcribing it, I wanted to pursue this story and set aside the bigger project for a bit later on. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of ongoing debate, right, for oh God, decades now about using criminal trials and there, there are all kinds of problems with them. And of course that's true. But, you know, it, just as you've laid out, like how are you to get at the lives of these, these people? And they don't show up any other time. I think it's right to be skeptical of any source of this story. And the fact of a source being an archival manuscript rather than a printed book doesn't in many ways make it more or less trustworthy. Although I have, I'm fairly optimistic on the archival documents. Firstly, the scribes in the courts writing down the transcript of interrogations have to, for their job, to maintain their job, their office, they have to write an accurate report. I've seen trials in the archives in Paris of scribes stripped of their office for writing a false report, prosecuted for fraud. And often people who come to the courts on appeal say, you can't trust what was written down in the local court because a scribe was corrupt. That's why I'm appealing to Paris. So I think often the records are fairly good um, at transcribing what was said in the courtroom, although they're often full of abbreviations. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes when you compare a neat copy in the earlier rough report, you see further how it's condensed. Um, but they're fairly accurate records of what was said. Whether what was said was, any, was true is another question. Mm -hmm. uh, people lie in court uh, for all sorts of reasons. That's a fascinating question and becomes part of the history in itself. So among other books um, that we as early modernists, as historians might be familiar with, Natalie Zeman Davis famously wrote the, the important book, Fiction in the Archives, on how far people tell stories in courts to achieve their own ends, which might be more or less true. But the way in which they tell the stories is also part of our research and the interest of working these documents in the first place. Yeah. And they're, uh, God, they're just cool. Just... They are. I, I love them. They're, they're, it's so exciting to work with. And even if they're written down by highly trained literate scribes who have better or worse handwriting, depending, and I have my preferred and less preferred scribes for that reason, you sometimes see, even um, for the less literate among the witnesses, you see, for example, in this trial, people signing their names. There's a married couple, um, Marin Leroy and Olive Coriou. She signs very nicely um, with a condensed script, although she was not wealthy at all. Um, 
they were farmers um, near Shomel. But he tried to sign and he stopped halfway through and the scribe wrote, he signs very badly. So you can see these kind of touches of people's lives on the page, as well as records of what was said. And I don't want to pass on that as a historian. The quality of the documents draws me to work with them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm with you on this. All right. So tell us, uh, let's let's get, I want to get to know the kind of this players, because it, it's a drama. This is a drama where we're going to read about, and I would like to know the characters. So let's start with René Chevalier, um, who has got to feel like a close companion at this stage, right? Uh, she does. And really, when I discovered who René Chevalier was, that's when I realized that this was a book, not just an article or an anecdote. Um, René Chevalier, she's the widow who takes her vengeance in prosecuting this trial. She is absolutely fascinating. She lived to the age of 89. She married five times. Um, she was born into a minor noble family uh, near Sals in central France. Um, her mother died when she was very young. She had a sister called Anne Chevalier. Um, her mother was, was noble um, and her father was a merchant. So after her mother died, um, her uncle took control of her guardianship and brought her up. Um, but her uncle was a Protestant strongly involved in the wars of religion. He used a lot of her inheritance to finance the Protestant cause in and around Sams. So when the Chevalier grows up, the ward of a Protestant military captain in the early wars of religion, his house is ransacked in the 1562 um, massacre at Sams. He's not present, but um, his house is raided. When she's, when the René Chevalier is in her early 20s, he arranges her first marriage to a financier called Martin Legrel. He had, with a few other assistants, saved the house of Nevers from financial ruin in the 1560s. So he's a wealthy financier who needs to marry into nobility, and they have a good um, arrangement there. Um, at that point, he's a royal secretary. He only got that job because he took the, the office of a man who was massacred in, in, on St. Bartholomew's Day the year earlier. So when Chevalier then seems like she's set up for um, uh, noble living, she might come into her inheritance eventually, but her, her first husband dies soon afterwards. She's widowed for the first time. And as a widow, she has greater legal capacity. She can act to defend her own interests. And so she sues her uncle to get control of her inheritance and she wins. She sues her mother-in-law to get control of the inheritance of her first husband, and she wins. It's held by the fact that her mother-in-law was also a Protestant who fled Paris in 1563 to marry the Bishop of Nevers when he converted to Protestantism and went to Geneva. He was executed because he betrayed the Geneva Republic as a double agent. So the judges in Paris aren't likely to find in, in favor of this mother-in-law. Um, and it, so Yorgenish Valley ends up as um, the Dame de Chaumeau. She's the noblewoman. She's the lord of Chaumeau. She controls the chateau. Um, she's a very competent businesswoman. She turned up across the notarial archives. I could find her signature on all sorts of documents and letters. So the research became as much reconstructing the biography of the plaintiff who brought the case um, and that the crime at the centre of the book uh, begins with the soldier's led by a, a captain called Matrin de la Cange, invading her chateau at Chaumont near Sens in the winter of 1590-91 because they were looking for somewhere to overwinter, basically, at that phase of the wars of religion known as the Troubles of the League. It's the Eighth Civil War, but it probably doesn't quite matter to distinguish between phases up to that point. But it's a war over who will be king. Will it be a Catholic or will it be instead Henry of Navarre, who at that point is the heir to the throne by hereditary descent, but as a Protestant. Matrin de la Cage is in the Royalist army supporting Navarre, um, and it becomes a uh, an internal dispute, and René Chevalier gets caught in the middle. Okay, so she is the she has the chateau, um, and we're going to meet now um, Matrin de la Cange, who uh, is leading, he's um, he's a military captain, right, in, in Henri de Navarre's army. So tell us about, well, actually, let's step back a little bit and, and talk a bit more about this very brutal conflict. Um, so these crimes are playing out in the French War of Religion. It's 36 years of intermittent violence, right? Um, what's actually, what's at stake 
what's at stake is peace in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, what's at stake is, is is justice. Is it possible for soldiers' violence to be prosecuted? Mm-hmm. Who is responsible for maintaining the peace? And ultimately, in the broader conflict that links up René Chevalier as Lord of, of Chaumont, Maître de Lacange as a soldier in the Royalist army, he is fighting for the succession of the man who is, in his view and in the view of many in France, the legitimate heir to the throne. His opponent is the Catholic League. You have the support of the Duke de Guise uh, and, and his um, faction, one of the wealthiest noble families in the kingdom, ardent Catholics. The League has the support of the Spanish monarchy, of the papacy. So it's, it's a pan-European Catholic mm-hmm. movement trying to prevent Henry of Navarre becoming king. So for people living through the conflict, who is king depends on the solidity of French law. Is hereditary succession depends on Salic law that goes back to the Franks. If that's broken, what happens to the French constitution? So that's what the royalists say. They're defending their constitution. On the other hand, the leaguers say, if the king of France, the Catholic kingdom of France, if the king is a Protestant, Henry de Var, then they've torn apart the contract of, of church and state. Um, what's at stake is the broader question. Is the church in the state which is what the royalists say for Navarre, or is the state in the church, which is what the leaguers say. And that is a battle for the life and death and for salvation. Yeah. It really matters what's going on. Um, and it's the kind of conflict on that level for peace, civil society, salvation, that means that civil war ties up everybody in the kingdom, not just the higher aristocracy, the generals and the armies. The war is on a small scale. The French talk about la grande guerre, la petite guerre. Uh, big battles happen. There's a major battle in 1590 at Ivry before the crimes take place um, that are sent to the book. But more likely, war in the wars of religion is about small numbers of troops, village by village, looking to stay alive um, and pursue the cause and take control over very small points of territory. And that all adds up to make the, the military stakes very high on the, on the scale of the kingdom and even uh, throughout Europe. But it's one that I think makes most sense for us as historians. We can understand that from the perspective of not only the lord of the manor, but the villagers who look down the hill and see 25 soldiers marching up hungry, looking so to stay over winter. Yeah, where are they going to spend the night, in, which is... Whose whose things are they going to take? Uh, and they think they can have they can have a claim to um, the food and resources, to uh, the houses, the beds, and then in, in, in this case, um, as soldiers elsewhere in early modern Europe claimed, according to what they said were the customs of law, that they could also have sexual control over women in a village. And I think one thing I've witnessed in the trial is to show that that's not always the case. And some soldiers may have claimed that extent of of, of violence, control, and booty, but that wasn't always mm-hmm. um, the the norms of war that were that were maintained or upheld. But so, I mean, what what you've just outlined is a conflict that means absolutely everything from yes. top to bottom, every facet of your life. Who's coming to maybe kill you and take your horse? Who to who's going to be your king? What does that mean? How are you allowed to to worship? Um, are you you know if you're if you're thinking about it, are you going to find yourself in, at war with the rest of Europe soon if this goes poorly? Like this is an absolutely overwhelming and and multifaceted and every facet of your life is controlled by this war. And I just want to make sure our listeners understand when we're talking about the wars of religion, it's not just like a confessional. It's not about like whether or not your priest should run off to Geneva and marry. It's it's really kind of every facet of your life, yeah. It really is. And I think there's a tradition um, of understanding the wars of religion from an older generation of historians, inherited really from the 19th century, that the wars of religion might be seen as a common phrase, politics under the cloak of religion. So traditionally it's seen as the clash of aristocrats, um, the Guise versus the Montmorency versus the Bourbon, um, with rival interests that just claim religion to pursue their ends. Or alternatively, it might be seen as a 
purely ideological or even theological conflict, a split over ideals. And to some extent, those are all true. Um, there is a conflict between the ability. There are major issues at stake of theology. But I think what historians, the generation that, that taught me, that I, I trained as a historian of reading that work, historians like Barbara Diefendorf, Matthew and Davis, Mac Holtz in France, Denis Crouzet, for example, they all and many others have shown how religion and politics intersect and religious views shape the politics, the political conflict shapes religion. And it's the interaction of the two forces that makes this such a, a totalizing and overwhelming conflict for everyone who lived through it. Right. Okay. So let's get back to our, our little conflict, little conflict, this is an earth-shattering conflict uh, in here. So our, our, let's talk about our man, Maturvan uh, de Lagrange. Yeah, not a nice guy. Yeah. No, he's one of the biggest villains I've ever studied. Uh, and that's fascinating to write about someone that you have such a visceral reaction against. But the scale of his violence is extreme. Um, and it's also interesting for me to to think about how to write that. It's very difficult to represent it um, responsibly, but also to understand his motivations. And if it's a problem with criminal archives. You see the representation of somebody through the court record. And he comes up in the trial 10 years after the events of the crime, defending himself. But partly, as I did with Vinny Chevalier when I was researching the case, I wanted to reconstruct his biography as well outside of the trial. And that was much harder than for Vinny Chevalier because despite his name, De La Conche, I don't think he was a nobleman. I twice found him claiming he was the seigneur of La Conche, but I also found his estranged first wife calling him Maturin La Conche, so not de, not a nobleman. Um, I did find him, though, in some some records, he grew up in a village near Shomo called Dolo, um, in the household of, of a Protestant family. Um, he probably joined the army in the early 1580s, the Royalist Army. Uh, some of his close friends turned up in the trial records, and I found them especially in a fascinating document of the, the Bayage, the Bailiwick Court of, um, uh, of Valerie, another nearby village, which was atrociously written and conserved. It's in really bad condition, but the archivists in Auxerre were brilliant at letting me ha have access to it. There, I was able to find an ongoing saga of him, him trying to divorce his first wife, or her trying to divorce him. Um, so there I could see that he was in the region involved in conflicts and in disputes uh, on a local level, even before the event of the trial. But then he got caught up in the Royalist Army. So he was possibly at the Siege of Sens in the summer of 1590, he was definitely at the siege of Valéry, um, this small um, village on the outskirts of Sens, controlled by the Royalists. And then he was leading a band of around 20 soldiers um, who were operating in this highly specific region, but traveling um, with horses, um, sometimes on foot as well, between villages and trying to maintain control for their Royalist party in this region to the west of Sens, where the Niche Valley is one of, or if not the dominant landowner. Okay. And yeah, I mean, he's just a brute, right? Um, but that, that that's unfair. Well, because I don't know, but I don't, I have no idea what's going on with this guy. But his crimes are, are, are brutal. Yeah. He's seen by all the people who testify against him. 57 witnesses all agree he is a brute, but they go to Paris as part of the trial in 1599-1600 to get him hanged. They're out for revenge against him. But um, even if we find it difficult to trust criminal records for people going with an agenda into the courtroom, they we can also historicize standards of proof and say, what did it mean for them in the 16th century to prove something? Um, law courts at the time wanted a confession, which he was not going to give, or two valid eyewitnesses. Uh, there are dozens of mm. eyewitnesses with strong claims to to, to describe the crimes he committed um, after he invaded the village. Um, I think it was on All Saints Day, 1590, so so 1st of November, 1590. Um, he marches into Shomo and declares that he sees the chateau. So in the king's name, he's got a, a spurious story that Venetia Valley supported the league, and we can come to this perhaps, but she has good claim later to be one of those prominent supporters of Henry Navarre early on. I think Mathilde de la Conche underestimates her from the beginning. But he initially overwhelms her. So she she leaves with her servants within a few days. They pack up carts 
and go to a village called Cotonade nearby. Um, and they describe taking furniture and clothes and food and provision. There's a dispute whether um, whether she paid him off um, not to attack her. That that's questioned. But as soon as he arrives, René Chevalier sends one of her servants to spy on him. So I think she's called Jeanne Gerbeau to watch what's happening um, when he's attacking uh, the villagers. And she witnesses, I think, on day one of his invasion, Matrin de Lacange rape one of the villagers of Chaumont in the vineyards nearby. Chaumont is a, is a farming village that has um, primarily agriculture, but also viticulture is the main mm-hmm. industry. So he commits acts of sexual violence. He, he rapes villagers from the outset. He is proving to them quite how violent and brutish he, he could be. And I think they possibly, if they knew him, they would have known that anyway, because he was, um, it was explained by some other villagers that in a few months earlier, in a nearby village called Sherwa, he'd also committed sexual violence against villagers there. So I think he was trying to prove um, quite how brutish he was to intimidate them as part of a claim to take control over this village, claiming he's fighting in the king's name. And in French history, King Henry IV, who was Henry of Navarre, and he later converts to Catholicism to become Henry IV, he's known as the good King Henry, the person who looked after peace in the kingdom and protected the, the his subjects. Here he, we've got a military captain acting in the name of Henry Navarre, committing all of the worst atrocities. Over the, those months, he commits, according to the case files, at least 16 recorded acts of rape with named victims. He commits at least seven, I think, homicides with named victims and countless examples of, of pillage and theft mm-hmm. from across Shomo and the surrounding countryside. Sure. So let's talk a bit about sexual violence. How common is this in, I mean, it's common enough that he's going to claim, like soldiers are going to claim it's their right, right? But like, talk to us a bit about that. It's 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 really difficult to tell. And here is one of the reasons I wanted to work on this trial in particular is because sexual violence during war is such an important topic for any society to tackle. I don't think they tackled it effectively that well in the Sydney century. This, this trial might be an exception. We're clearly struggling throughout the world in the 21st century, even if rape is, is a war crime according to the Rome Statute 97, um, we're still struggling to tackle it now. So I thought this is this this matters, and I want to get it right. I want to understand what the impact of sexual violence was in the wars of religion. But typically, if we look at chronicle sources, narrative sources of the time, they might say that countless rapes were committed or that uh, a town or a city was, was violated. Rape might be used as a metaphor for the conquest of the village. I think even the use of that metaphor serves to some extent in the time to legitimate soldiers' actions there. Um, sometimes um, writers, uh, chroniclers, anyone from I found an example of Michel de Montaigne, the great philosopher, to regional chroniclers will um, dismiss soldiers' sexual violence as an inevitability. But one reason I found this trial important is because here I was finding villagers of the 57 witnesses, I think around 30 are women, and there's direct testimony of people who are in the courtroom a decade after events, coming face to face with Matthew de Lacange, saying, in one case, he raped my sister and threatened to rape my mother, or another case, in two cases, sorry, women testified that he had raped them. A third case, Jean Gerbeau, who spied on Matthew de Lacange when he arrived, uh, other sources in the trial record say that he raped her too, but she didn't say that in the recorded interrogation. So here it makes it clear that rape was used by soldiers as a weapon of war. That's well established um, in many conflicts. I think it's also important to point out that soldier sexual violence is not only a weapon of war. It sounds almost like a, a utilitarian point to say that, but I think that misses the point that soldiers also commit the crime of rape for all sorts of reasons and I think it's important to identify the incident and define it properly to also to work out the correct legal solution rape as an act of war um, sounds like it risks having a degree of legitimation for the war cause which it does not but I think it's important to point out that the diverse um, incidents like in Shoma there are moments where Matthew de clearly uses rape to intimidate um, the villagers. There's one incident where um, him and his soldiers brutally attack a villager in the, the hall of Shomo. There are other incidents that happen where it was only witnessed because somebody by chance 
um, happened to see him. So he's clearly an extremely violent person, even by the standards of the wars of religion. There's a chapter of Montaigne's essays on cruelty, where he says that he's seen things he couldn't believe have happened, that people have made made extremely cruel by the wars of religion. Here is somebody who clearly goes even beyond the extremes of cruelty we see elsewhere. Nevertheless, from imperfect evidence, it does seem that rape was was often committed by soldiers throughout the wars of religion. I don't want to say it was common, because I can't assess that. Um, uh, and it's hard to tell, and it risks making it sound like back in the 16th century, in so-called more primitive times, rape was more common in, in, than in other conflicts. I have no idea, but here's an example of somebody who clearly thought he could get away with it, but also who was clearly prosecuted successfully for sexual violence, which shows that it was not tolerated, and that if it was hard to prosecute, um, as his sorens are well shown, nevertheless, there are trials. There's not just this one, this is the best documented one, I found dozens more. But here is a trial where perhaps because of, of a female plaintiff, Lenny Chevalier leading, leading the case to court, there are villagers who feel empowered to say he did this and it was wrong and he should be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so that that, that that's uh, uh, that really tells us a lot, though, right? That there's this expectation that you're going to see it. Perhaps it can work as a defense, but in fact, it doesn't, right? It, the, so there is something, however commonplace it might be it's still not common perhaps um yeah um and and indeed then in 1599 uh, um, a decade later it, this comes to head to a head Renée Chevalier leads her village really to Paris to take on Matapin de Lacange um and this is exceptional yeah yes I think and the fact it took her nine years to repair the case shows the difficulty of going to court I think early modern justice is often rightly criticised for being expensive, slow, inefficient. I think sometimes we risk condemning early modern justice for those terms, which we might also acknowledge can characterise aspects of our justice today. Um, but clearly it took time. René Chouinette had to arrange her finances. She marries a second time but just before the trial comes to court. She has to gather the witnesses. Um, but after doing that, and spending several years also drawing on the support of her patron, her first husband's patron, Duke of Nevers, um, she charters a boat in Salts. The villagers travel from Chaumont and other other nearby villages too to get on the boat to Paris. It travels down the River Yonne. It joins the Seine at Montreux-Fortillon. Um, and she has her Parisian hotel, her, her residence on the left bank, which she inherits from her first husband. And she clearly spends the next... Um, six months to a year in Paris, arranging hostels for the witnesses. I've found records of her ordering in shipments of firewood and wine that, um, down the Seine for, for that particular period. She's a plaintiff. She doesn't go into court. Um, she's not allowed to testify. She denounces Matthew de Lacange. There are all sorts of aspects of legal chicanery that it first goes to a military court. You send it on appeal to the Parlement, the, the High Court, Matthew de Lacange, wants to appeal against the initial hearing, but it, it proceeds in any case. And so the judges in Paris say, okay, Venetia Valley, you've done your own local interrogation. It begins with her getting her solicitor to interview in the in the Chateau of Chambou. She brings all the testimony to Paris. The judges say, fine, you've done your own interrogations, but we have to verify this. We have to make sure that what the witnesses have said and has written down is true and to test it as part of a standard procedure in inquisitorial justice for the period. The magistrates in Paris bring all the witnesses face to face in the criminal chamber. It's called the Chamber of the Tornel. The tower is still there in Paris, in the Palais de Justice. It faces the right bank, Grand de la Cité. And they confronted face to face, and the judges read back to them what they'd said in their earlier interrogations. The earlier interrogations don't survive, but we have the, the record of what happened in Paris. And then Maître de la Corche gets the chance to say, as he does every time, you're a liar, you've been bribed, you can't be trusted, you're a spy, you fought against me, whatever he can think of to slander them. Um, and they say, no, I'm not, you're lying, this is what happened, you committed all these acts of rape, homicide, pillage. And it takes um, about seven or eight months to go through all these interrogations. Magistrates do it very carefully. 
gather the testimony, uh, it makes up something like 40,000 words of testimony in total. And then they put it to him for the final interrogation in which he has a chance to reply. And characteristically, he denounces his accusers, he lies, finds any way to, to, to get out of it. And the judges in Paris um, find him guilty. His judges are, are an amazing range of people. Um, the person who signs the verdict is a judge called Jacques-Auguste Tour. He's probably the most famous historian of the 16th century in France. Uh, he is at, at the same time as he's judging the case, writing the history of the wars of religion and um, the history of his times. Uh, he was a close, well, he was an acquaintance of um, Pierre de Tolle, who wrote my first book on. The world of the magistrates is a world of, of high intellectual elite. But I find it fascinating to, um, to imagine what it's like for a person who works in the vineyards in Chaumont, who's possibly never left the small um, region around the village of Chaumont, to turn up in a boat in Paris to see Yonne Chevalier's residence, and then to see the, the Palace of Justice, which was the site of the medieval royal court, and then meet all these illustrious judges. It's a comp must have been a huge shock for them, but they hold themselves with dignity in court and they give very precise testimony that matches. They give the judges what they need to hang him. So this is not me saying these are heroes of justice. They're going out for the death penalty. So we, we have to relativize this. Is in a city-century world, it's their view of justice, not mm -hmm. ours. Um, but they, it, it's a very complicated, detailed, um, but on the Valley's part, well-planned prosecution. It is kind of imagine. It's just magical to imagine them, you know, rounding the Seine and finding Paris. And it's just got to be this amazing, incomprehensible world. One of them said he um, he got off the boat at one point because um, he wanted to walk a bit of it. And it came up because he was accused by Mesquite de la Cage of taking a bribe. And he said, I didn't take a bribe. You can see because I lost money because I got off... Um, and walk another section and another time Matt van der Lacange says you can't trust these witnesses on the boat René Chevalier was bribing them because she gave them uh, food and wine and a really nice picnic um, and she really made sure they say whatever she wanted and actually in the law of the time she's plaintiff she's supposed to pay their expenses uh, they have a clear response to this too so they're able to, to counter his charges and his attempts to manipulate the system throughout the trial mm -hmm. That's, which is you know, when we think about early, you know, you and you and I would read these all the time. This makes sense. This is perfectly de rigueur. But I, I think that there there was some bad made for TV movie or something that has convinced everyone that pre-modern justice is like these these kangaroo courts with like medieval trials or, you know, and, and uh, you've got to hold burning rods or something. But this is fairly standard. There's like there are processes for asking questions and how this works, yeah. I think it really this trial is exceptional in that it survives. It's exceptional in that it is rare to prosecute sexual violence, to find witnesses willing to come forward. It's dangerous for them. It's expensive. It takes René Chevalier's wealth and connections to bring the case to court. I, I can't make it seem like it's typical in any sense. But it's also not entirely unusual for there to be such extensive witness testimony the magistrates to take time over recording it carefully. It's just that not all records survive in this way or have been catalogued. So there, there are moments of sifting in the archives that have gone on over centuries. I mean, these archives were piled up during the revolution and taken out of the scribe's office and recatalogued in the National Archives. So there are stages of mediation and sifting. But this is how justice works. It's mm -hmm. in one period. Um, when it works, it can be thorough and detailed um, and in this sense effective. Sure. Uh, there's one more little uh, wrench in this works, which is the Edict of Nantes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's an important point. And for historians of the wars of religion uh, and, uh, and Europe more generally in the period, the Edict of Nantes is, is a really important um, piece of legislation. It's the royal ordinance, the royal edict that ends the wars of religion. It's the peace settlement. Uh, it lasts from 1598 and when Henry IV orders it to end the wars of religion until Louis XIV revokes it in 1685 when he ends religious toleration. But for that period, Protestants, they've not won the wars of religion strictly, but you have Henry of Navarre becomes Henry IV as king, he goes to Catholicism. He finds a way to create a structure where Protestants can have 
freedom of conscience and to some extent freedom of worship in certain locations. There are Protestant churches, there are Protestant strongholds, there are bipartisan courts called the, the Chambre de l'Edit, the Chambers of the Edicts, that can judge legal cases with a mixed bench of judges. But in Article 1 of a lengthy edict, it says, and it's, there will be amnesty that disputes of the, of the wars should be forgotten. You can make peace by forgetting the troubles, which causes a major issue for anybody like René Chevalier who wants to prosecute soldiers' violence that occurred during the troubles. That How can this happen? Because the amnesty clause is not saying, wipe your memory, uh, that's impossible, but it is saying you cannot bring to court disputes that relate to the troubles. However, Article 86 of the Edict of Nantes, so buried quite deep in the in the record, and there was an earlier version, in the 1577 Edict of Poitiers, ended a previous civil war. It makes an exception, and this is really important for the trial. Uh, it, it guides the whole process. That says that what are called in the article execrable crimes, cacicab, they're exceptions. And this means that if a soldier or anybody else commits an act of violence that's so heinous that it goes beyond what has been ordered by a captain or, or a hierarchy. That it's a breach of natural law that might involve rape, pillage, serious homicide, um, theft on the highway, crimes, not acts of war, then they can be prosecuted. And I think that's the crucial legal exception that allows the trial to go ahead. And in a way, there's a broader point here that shows the act of Nantes' strength as a system for ensuring peace in the aftermath of, of the wars, because it means that generally the conflicts are forgotten and peace can be built on amnesty, but also those with a serious grievance and legitimate cause can have a mechanism to take their case to court, um, can find justice, and that conflict can be moved through formal legal means, which avoids the risk of another outbreak of violence. It's what um, jurists at the time would call public vengeance, um, and by which they mean not private vengeance, feuding. But I think they're trying to lure people to the courts and saying, you don't lose honour by suing or prosecuting rather than fighting. In fact, you gain in honour by taking your court before the king's justice and having the magistrates serving under the king approve the validity of your claim, that you have your vengeance, you have justice, um, you've taken revenge, but in a way that, that secures and guarantees peace. And my broader argument here would be that the peace settlement doesn't, in the end of the war's religion, doesn't only depend on King Henry IV top-down pacifying the kingdom by his great glory and genius, but also depends on villagers from Chomel getting on a boat and spending eight, nine months in Paris to support the Valley's prosecution of an atrocious military captain. There's a perspective that for peace to work, people need to really take part in it. And for reconstruction to happen, we need to follow through the implications. And the Edict of Nantes is an example of laws of war in this case, but I think this is a, a point with, with relevance for any period. A law court or magistrates or a king can come up with the text of a law, but for it to make any difference, you've got to apply it. And here, this law was applied by a clinician of value, by a noble widow, not by strictly on his own, the genius of the king who devised it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so how does our story end? Well, it's interesting that the the, the story ends with, with him being hanged, with Pierre de l'Etoile as we, as we started, um, going to the Place de Grève now where the Hôtel de Ville, the town hall is in Paris, watching Matarin de Lacange um, be dragged to the scaffold, um, swearing in his good form for him uh, Letoile wrote down that he was swearing at the head judge for not pardoning him. Uh, the head judges of the Parlement of Paris actually was related to Delacarte's childhood patroness. I think he was hoping for a pardon at the last minute. Um, so it ends in being hanged. I have no idea, but I expect that René Chevalier and some of the villagers who are still in Paris were present to watch him hang in April 1600. But after that, there's no mention. There's, there's Letoile's diary entry. They forget about him. They all at least they don't record any mention of him publicly. But Elena Shabadi lives for she's only halfway through her life at that point. She goes back to Shomu. She marries three more times. Um, 
uh, with uh, Jacques de Montgomery, uh, who interestingly is related to um, the Duke de Montgomery, who was responsible for the war's origin beginning. It was his love. <coughs> it was his lance that uh, pierced the eye of King Henry II in 1559 that led to the succession crisis. Um, she marries Anne de la Marque, um, another maiden nobleman from a Protestant family, um, who had converted to Catholicism. Uh, she marries Guy Dufour, the descendant of a, of a family of noble judges in Toulouse. Each time she negotiates a better marriage contract, a larger share of the dower, and she builds up her wealth um, and influence. Unfortunately, the third marriage for her goes awry when her third husband sees fit to leave their chateau of Chauveau in the hands of one of his friends in the wars of religion, who pillages it himself. Um, he raids her coffers. Uh, he steals her, her livestock, so she has to sue him, um, and she's, she doesn't divorce, but she has a separation of goods with the third husband. So I kept wanting to find a Finnish Chevalier lose a legal case. I found her in a lot of legal cases. She always won. Um, I found her worryingly impressive throughout. But that's her story. She, she survives. She passes on her inheritance to her great-niece. She has no children, um, but she passes it on to her great-niece who married a judge in the Parle of Paris. The court that found in her favour again and again has a high magistrate who inherits her fortune. Her sister, her um, other nieces were not happy they got cut out the inheritance, but uh, it's hard to work out why. That's really Chevalier. For the villagers, they go back to Shoma, but I, I tried to look through the notarial archives that are kept now in Auxerre that were conserved from the nearby town of Villeneuve-le-Roi. There's no notary archives. Or, sorry, there are three acts only conserved from Shoma in the 17th century, so I couldn't find them directly. But I found villagers from Chauveau going down the hill to sign documents of all sorts. I found the parish priest, who was one of the witnesses, selling the right to collect the tithe, the, the, the tax he sold as, as parish priest. He sold it for a lump sum to another neighbour um, for a large pot of money, as well as the right to have six lambs on St. John the Baptist Day and a new hat. Um, so he did wear out the settlement. I found that another villager, I mentioned I think early on, in our conversation, Olive Coriou, who signed very neatly with her husband, Marie Lawai, signed less neatly. Olive Coriou um, died about 30 years after the trial. Matthew de la Canche raided her farm. But 30 years later, I found her in a notarial act organising her pension with her son-in-law because her farm was in ruins and she didn't have enough money to feed herself and her clothes were all ragged. So she signed a document agreeing that she would move in with her son-in-law and he would take her lands and her farming, which had a, a fallen down roof, and he would give her food and board to the end of her life. So I found fragments of the villagers. Some did well, some didn't do well. Um, it's the, the economic conjuncture of the 17th century is difficult. None of them mentioned the trial, uh, but, which is interesting that they got on with their lives. They publicly forgot the wars of religion, but um, clearly the events of of the civil wars more widely in its economic effects and what it did to their family lives, their connections, their fates and fortunes, clearly stuck with them, whether they talked about Matthew and the Lacage or not in the records that survived. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and what happens with what happens to uh, France? Well, that's that's a, a complicated story. Um, it's it's interesting that the in the Venice Chevalier's lifetime, the Edict of Nantes holds religious toleration is formally in place. The trial happens in the depths of the wars of religion and the accession of Henry IV. By the time she's deciding her inheritance, um, and just before she dies in 1641, this is the France of Cardinal Richelieu. This is France entering the Thirty Years' War um, on the side of um, the Protestant powers because they're opposing Spain. It's a new phase of Europe's wars of religion. Um, that, that in all sorts of ways indirectly affects the Valley's family. So, for example, um, the person who gained her fortune, Noël Le Boutz, who married Rennes Valley's great niece, Anne de Pré, he's a magistrate in the Parlement of Paris. The magistrate's not only judging criminal cases, and, and he was he did quite a lot of workload. I've seen him come up in all sorts of trials, but he also took part in debates, and he criticised the monarchy especially under Cardinal Mazarin, Richelieu's successor. He criticised the monarchy first for raising taxes to pay for the Thirty Years' War. And he said that um, the city of Sens was with him um, against, uh, against these taxes. So 
things move on. Rene Shali's descendants get tied up in the next phase of the wars of religion and all of the financial, uh, religious, social, political difficulties that it poses. But broadly, our family story is one of uh, relative significant ease and wealth in Paris, whereas the villagers in Schrommel aren't touched by the 30s war. I mean, soldiers walk, march through the, the broader area, um, but I didn't find traces in the documents of significant military disruption for the villagers. They're more interested in who has exactly that five meter squared plot of land at the edge of a line of, of, of vines on the hill um, between the windmill and the parish church. That's their world, and they go back to it really. Oh, we shouldn't really romanticize village life in the early modern period. It was really hard for them. Uh, the, the trial shows this, but there was a moment when they took part in major events that shaped the peace process. And I, I don't want to exaggerate their, their role in the conflict of the wars of religion, but I think it is also reasonable to say that by going to Paris with René Chevalier, by testifying against Mathurin de Lacange, and by putting into practice the Edict of Nantes clause on ex-war crimes, they are setting a major precedent for how we define, interpret, understand war crimes in the 16th century. And so that's a pretty significant contribution to social legal history for um, wine growers and their neighbours from Schrommel, which is a village that uh, I drove to when I was in the research and spent a day walking around and there's a Rue René Chevalier, but nobody was that interested in, 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 in talking about it. Many colleagues, especially I should mention my name, Alain Noel, who helped me a lot in the archives in Auxerre. Many of the region historians were, were fascinated and they helped me a great deal. So I'm very grateful to them and for their help in understanding the regional context of the trial. But it, it doesn't leave an enduring legacy um, in the place or in the region uh, for the reason I've explained. They didn't, they want to get on their lives essentially. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. If you could, you, I can't, I mean, you had no idea when you stumbled across this, what you were going to, what, what you were going to do. It took me a long time to even work out the word shumal. And when I was transcribing, often it's the names that are so hard, you can predict the, the formula. But as you know, from your own archive work, it's just difficult to get an unusual word. And um, once I started, I couldn't stop. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've taken up loads of your time. We've been on, we've taken up uh, longer than I intended. I'm sorry, but it's so fascinating. But, um, you know, so I have just one more question. What's next? What are you working on now? Good question. Uh, all sorts in a way. I mean, most immediately, there's, a, there's an article that I cut from the book, um, which I, I thought was very important to show the statistical pattern of criminal justice. You asked me how typical um, is this? How common was it to prosecute rape? I think that's an art, a question you can't answer with one story or even with 10 anecdotes, but you can answer with statistics. So um, many close friends and colleagues kindly advised that I cut that from the book and make a separate article. And they were they were right. Um, so I'm working on that and I'm also developing the, the new, new projects linked to that broader question of how does justice function throughout France, not only this, this exceptional trial, which um, I kind of broke off. So in a way, it's back to plan A <laughs> after a fascinating but quite extended detour, thanks to Venetia Valley and Matthew Delacanche. Oh, fantastic. That uh, that sounds like a good plan. And uh, good luck on this this article. I'm, I'm, I want you to work. I want that. I want you to get that out. I want to read it. <laughs> yeah. Should be coming out before before too long with the Sydney Century Journal. And I love that journal. Me too. Yeah, I love that journal. I love their conference. I love them. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I, that will look good then. Thank you so much for taking time with me today. And thank you, Anna, for taking time to discuss the book. I, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks.